Get the funk out my face. Get the funk out my face. You don't like my music. You don't have to use it. Here's our intro. And here's our intro. <laughs> Welcome to the RC Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss the latest RC hobby news, events, model reviews, and a whole lot more. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the RC Roundtable. Joining me as usual is uh, Terry Dunn. How you doing? Hey, Terry. How you doing in Great White North? And uh, next up is Lee Ray. Happy New Year. And we have a very special guest today. We have the amazing uh, Jim Burke. Well, I don't know what to say. Hello. <laughs> hey, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. Uh, first up, uh, the hobby news. Uh, we, we got some kind of sad news in a, in a sense that uh, HobbyCo, which uh, owns the brands of Tower Hobbies and Great Plains, uh, announced that they were filing for Chapter 11 uh, a bankruptcy. And, of course, it doesn't mean that they're, they're going out of business. That would be Chapter 7, if I remember correctly. But this was still kind of a shock to the industry, being that HobbyCo slash Tower slash Great Plains is one of the the landmark model aviation companies uh, for since what, the 70s. Uh, they, they've been around for a long time. All of us have probably very fond memories of getting their products and and uh even in our early days and or just the catalogs yeah just the catalogs they were like the <laughs> sears catalog for model aviation it was just you spent hours just looking through those, those wonderful catalogs that they used to produce which and, if you've been a long time listener of our show you know that lee ray when we visited tower hobbies picked up a couple of old catalogs for his inventory yeah i think you keep those <laughs> under your mattress lee <laughs> that's, that's like childhood memories right there right <laughs> yeah in fact, you know, uh, probably all of, all of us still have some some of the old catalogs laying around somewhere uh, that we just don't want to get rid of because it's just so much memories. And um, uh, now, Jim, you're a business owner. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Chapter Eleven? From what I understand, it allows them to reorganize and possibly sell some assets, but it doesn't mean that they're going out of business. It just means it's a more of a financial thing, correct? Well, I would, yeah, that's a, that's, that's, I think that's correct, and you just don't really know what's going to happen in a situation like this. It's, it's impossible to, to make a real good guess. But um, in general, I think that a situation like this, the company would probably be uh, better off than they were before, because uh, the bankruptcy, the concept of that is that they can take their debts and they can sort of set them aside and have those debts, uh, um, you know, administered by a legal process, and then they don't have to worry about those debts on their balance sheet going forward. So the idea of the Chapter 11 is that the HobbyCo wants to sell. They want to take uh, um, their assets and sell them, hopefully to one customer which I, I, or one buyer, which I, I, I believe would, should be possible if they're a profitable company. They seem to be at this point. So um, assuming that they can uh, find someone to buy them and, uh, and continue on, then it won't really be much disruption at all, I would think. It could range from that to something that's a little more disruptive. They might have to sell off the brands. And, uh, and piece things out. But essentially, you know, when a company is profitable, there's really no reason why it wouldn't continue because it's making the owners money. The current owners, I don't know who they are. Uh, the, you know, uh, the company's been an uh, employee-owned company for a while. And um, uh, I don't know who actually is, has taken the company over. Uh, I'm not really any more aware of all the stuff that you guys are. But to speculate, the, you know, whoever does hold the assets is, is making a profit now. Uh, 
or we'll want to, uh, or we will sell it to somebody who wants to make a profit because uh, they will not have the, the debt continuing with it. So I, I would say it's probably not really. I know, I know, it's shocking and it's hard to hear because uh, we've all been around that hobby. The, the four of us have, and I also was in the hobby of, for many, many years and relied on tower for a long time. And uh, even when I was in the Air Force, I remember going to the break room at the uh, at the Air Force base where I worked, and there were uh, Tower Hobby catalogs. They were just a very common thing to see. I saw them at the doctor's office once in a while, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. So uh, it's hard to see that that's happening, but it's a reflection of the times, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to be around anymore. There's, there's a lot of people who I've seen who are speculating that this is just the end of the company, and I don't think that's probably the case. Time will tell, but I just don't think that's probably what's going to happen. Well, you mentioned that they're a profitable company. So help me understand how a company that's profitable gets into this kind of situation. Right. Well, uh, yeah, right. Uh, fair fair question. Obviously, a company does not get in the situation if they've been profitable. But the point of the bankruptcy is that the debts that have been serviced and that have made it impossible to be profitable are now set aside. The bad news, of course, is if you're one of the people who hold on, who, who are holding a debt and you're expecting payment, the bankruptcy means you're probably going to have to fight really hard to get it. You might not get all of it. But the but the the point of the bankruptcy is that then the business itself, as in order to go into bankruptcy, has restructured itself and eliminated positions. And I think they probably I assume again I'm speculating, but I assume by now they've eliminated the positions that they don't need to have. So that they're they're probably not at least immediately faced with layoff. I assume now might, you know they might announce a layoff tomorrow. I'll look like an idiot, but you just ask me a question. I'm answering. You know. <laughs> yeah, sure. And uh, and I and I really think that probably at this point they probably. Uh, um, uh, done the things they have to do, made the hard decisions over the last year to make the company so it is uh, profitable going forward, and um, and the debt now is has to be resolved through the legal process. Like I said, so yeah, not profitable. Obviously, they racked up quite a bit of debt. I think we probably all saw the the news article um, that was written that, that kind of painted a picture that, that looked pretty bad. But if if you take that debt off the table and you have some kind of profit going forward, then there's no reason why the business isn't viable. And not to dig too deep into this, but I'm just kind of a, a financial idiot. So mm-hmm. if the people who stand to lose the most on this are the, the people who they have, who they owe, um, presumably that's suppliers. And if those people go away or get, you know, I guess, ticked off by this, do you think that shapes how they come out on the other side? Um, well, I would think uh, obviously they have to have relationships going forward. That that is a that's a good point. Like if they um, if they simply stop paying everybody, then nobody's going to be happy with them, and they're not going to have business uh, suppliers going forward. And uh, any company in a bankruptcy has to has to um, you know has to gauge all this and figure out what's best for them. I don't I don't really know how they've done that calculation or what their situation is. I'm not uh, you know in, involved in the internals of the company. They are for me a customer with uh, Knife Edge Software. We give them. Real flight to sell. We make the software that they, you know, packages real flight. So, um, you know, I know that our relationship is, has uh, weathered what they went through in 2017, and uh, we're you know we're anxious to see how things are going to go in 2018. Of course, like any other suppliers would be, but um, provided they're able to make payments going forward, then I don't I don't see why the you know there'd be a big change. Now they, they might have a lot of the debt. It's possible. See, we're speculating, and I don't know if that's totally fair for me. But but since the question was asked, it's possible that a lot of their debt is really expressed in the um, employee stock ownership program, which I know they had trouble making payments on. It's possible that the bankruptcy is is um, going to affect the the older the ex employees, past employees, and uh, you know a lot more than than uh, than the suppliers. It's possible they'll get a partial payout instead of the full payout they were hoping for. It's possible the stock price in the employee stock ownership program has just dropped and now it's a, a, 
uh, you know, a level of payment they can manage. I really don't know. Uh, this, it's, uh, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not trying to say this is a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's a difficult thing for everybody at that company. They've worked very hard over the last year to avoid this from happening. But it's uh, from time to time when there's a downturn in a business and it catches uh, a company that's, you know, maybe not ready or not able to, to change fast enough or um, is maybe hopeful that the that the business situation will turn around, you know, from time to time, it just catches companies and they, they go through this kind of thing. It's not entirely unusual, especially a company that's been around for a long time. Right. So I, I just think, you know, it's sort of a wait and see. Everybody wants to talk online. I see a lot of conversations, people, they, they're speculating, you know, some people saying there'll be a fire sale, everybody sold, you know, everything will be sold out or, or there won't be anything to buy or the company's going out of business. Probably none of those things are going to be the reality we just have to wait and see. The real thing that happened here is just a, 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 a near collapse of the dealer market over the last few years. Uh, the, the tower, um, uh, not so much tower, but the, the rest of the business that Hobbyco has relied on selling directly to stores. And the stores just aren't around in the same number they were before. And the stores are not um, stocking as much as they used to. I've been to probably 100 hobby stores over the last few years visiting and talking to hobby shop owners. And um, they're, they've gotten much savvier about how to run a store than they used to be. They're much more careful about what to, to order and they know what's gonna move. And they're just not as uh, willing to take in products that they don't think will, will leave the shelves quickly than they used to be. They used to be they'd be more willing to hang on and you'd see hobby stores with, with lots of old product in the store. But that's not as much as it is. They don't do that as much now because um, people buy so many things off of uh, uh, Amazon or, or other retailers. And um, or you know obviously hobby retailers as well uh, a lot of that and um, it just cuts in their business so they're just not as willing to stock you know, a lot of depth and that hurts a company like Hobbyco that supplies so much hobby gear to uh, to hobby stores. Yeah, I've had a, a hobby store owner tell me that pretty much something along the order of eighty percent of his product, eighty percent of the items he sold was like twenty percent of the product or something like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, you know, it, it, of course, it's changed. It's no good to, to talk about how it used to be in a way because that's how it used to be. It's not how it is now, but it used to be that the hobby stores made a lot of money off of the parts and, uh, you know, the, the little um, wheel collars and uh, propellers and spinners and servos and those things. Those sales are still there, but a lot of their money is made now on, on uh, ready-to-fly airplanes. And it's just – it's a different mix, and it doesn't involve the same amount of repeat business of course, when we all go to the hobby store, we want them to have all those things, all the little doodads, but um, we don't need those things as much. So it's a little selfish sometimes. We, th we think they should have it even though we're not personally buying it. You know, And that's, and that's tough on hobby stores. But, and it's not just that. The, the hobby industry has changed a lot in a bunch of ways uh, over the last five years or so. It's something that we've all noticed that are in the, the, the industry. And a lot of people have, uh, have watched that and adapted really well, and others have tried to adapt in ways and haven't been very successful. And, and some have decided that industry is not for them. It's just the way things go. It's it's uh, it's difficult because we've been doing it for so long that, that we see how the change, you know, we see the change. But um, from a business perspective, this is how businesses adapt. This is how it happens. They they they, uh, they close down or they uh, restaff or they let some people go or they find different products to make or they do something else. They maybe declare bankruptcy and restructure. When a, there's a downturn in a market, this is exactly how they, that, that gets expressed in, in the economy. So I guess I just look at it and I feel like we just wait and see. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, you know, it's not over until it's over and they're doing business as usual. So uh, feel if they have the items in stock, feel comfortable in ordering them. And uh, hopefully they'll pull through because, you know, this is, it'll leave a big hole and in, in not, not only in the industry, in our hearts if they, if they go away. So I think we all should do the best we can to try to support them and keep them uh, going. 
And yeah. the, the personal side of that is we all know people who work there. This oh, yes. It's not just a business sure. going, you know, having trouble. It's you know directly attached to people, too. Yeah, and there's good people. We should note that we uh, both Lee, Terry, and I uh, had a chance to visit the Hobbyco facilities a couple years ago, and uh, the people there were absolutely fantastic. And the facilities are actually really impressive, and and they all are dedicated to the hobby. And it was a great trip. It was like visiting the North Pole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> better than that. Um, we're rooting for them, and uh, I think it, it's. It, Based on that, I think it's uh, we're, we're really looking forward to them pulling out of this uh, struggle and, and challenge and getting back to being a great company that they are. Yeah, me too. All right, on uh, on that uh, on that note, we'll take a break and be right back. And joining us is the man of the world, the gentleman who puts his pants on one leg at a time, known as the owner of Knife Edge Software and the owner of Extreme Aerosports, and of course the previous owner of RC Groups. We are joined today with by Jim Burke. Hello. <laughs> good, good to be here. Yes, Jim, again, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to hear. You've got a long history in the the modeling world and now our real airplanes, too. And uh, everybody knows RC groups. If you don't know RC groups, then there's some big rock at the South Pole you've been hiding under, and I doubt even there you can escape it. Uh, And so, um, you know, just how did you get into the hobby, the RC model hobby? Tell us about the early beginnings of Little Jim. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's a... It's a great question. You know, I, I was around um, real airplanes from a very young age. My father was a pilot and became an aircraft broker and uh, ultimately became the, the highest selling uh, aircraft dealer for Cesta. So I was in airplanes my whole childhood. In fact, I just thought everybody had an airplane. <laughs> they grow on trees, huh? Have, yeah. Like, like all I, Texans have an oil rig in the backyard? Exactly. Everybody I knew had one. We went everywhere in an airplane. If it was a you know a 50-mile trip, we'd, if, if it was possible, we'd take an airplane. That's just how our family thought about stuff because um, he was selling airplanes, and it was always an opportunity for him to fly or to take an airplane somewhere. And a lot of the traveling I did as a kid, which I did a lot of traveling, you know, was, was uh, to pick up airplanes that he was uh, uh, doing deals with. So we went to uh, Mexico, or we'd go to Louisiana, or whatever, and uh, pick up an airplane and bring it back. I did a lot of that. So I grew up around it, and um, I didn't have uh, um, a real solid interest in like RC when I was a, a young kid, but I did have an interest in free flight planes. I used to build balsa wood airplanes all the time, and I'd buy the little uh, Gillows kits, you know, with a balsa slab wing that you'd slide through the fuselage. And, I'd uh, decide those wings weren't good enough. I'd make wings out of balsa wood. So I started going to the hobby store a lot to pick up balsa wood and glue and all that stuff and and, uh, covering. And I made a lot of airplanes like that growing up. And then somewhere, I guess I was probably 15 or 16, I got a job at a hobby store. I decided I wanted to do that. And uh, it's called Bel Air Hobbies in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, the owner there, his name was Chuck Field, was just a, a wonderful 
uh, owner, wonderful boss, really the still probably the best boss I've ever had. I just really enjoyed working with him. Uh, so I, I got uh, maybe a couple of years of working behind the register there, and he was great. Every Christmas, he'd ask me what I wanted for Christmas, and I could pick anything out in the in the store, and you know, just a, just that kind of really warm person that uh, that we all need in this hobby. And, and I, I just enjoyed him so much. I had an art teacher in high school who uh, his his daughter was really pretty, and also uh, he flew model airplanes. So I went out to fly model airplanes with him <laughs> at the flying field. I was, was maybe the daughter uh, there too. <laughs> what's that? Was the daughter no, the, also? No, the daughter didn't want anything to do with me, but the airplanes were kind of cool. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, my experience with airplanes was, uh, uh, was helpful, too. And, and I had flown a lot of video games, a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, flight, flight simulators. simulators I was yeah. really into, like uh, uh, F-16 or whatever it was. I can't remember what it's called, but um, there's a you know, famous F-16 simulator I played with a lot. And um, uh, Falcon, I think it was called. Yeah, Falcon. That's the one I'm sticking up. Yeah, I played that a lot. So I was pretty good with that uh, on the computer, and it turned out it's very, very similar to flight in the in RC. So I was kind of a natural, and uh, I just enjoyed doing it. I remember I had a day with him; it was really nice. We flew a cadet senior around, and boy, it was really a great time. The guy was a, a great art teacher, and uh, you know, we'd be we'd be friends today if he was hanging out with me here because he's just a really nice guy. So those are really informative kind of experiences for me with the hobby store and with this art teacher. And um, and then that, that turned out that when I left the house. And uh, my dad's doing all this airplane stuff, and then I went to the military, I went to the Air Force. My eyesight wouldn't let me fly, so I ended up getting stationed, though, right back at, uh, at Omaha, Nebraska, and off at Air Force Base. And um, somewhere in there, I just didn't have the money to fly real airplanes because I was on my own, and I was broke. You know, and, uh, an airman in the Air Force makes, like, at that time, made, like, $1,000 a month or something. It just wasn't enough to fly real airplanes. So I got into models, and I got really into it. And somewhere in there, I, you know, I was a programmer in the Air Force, a computer programmer. Somewhere in there, I started uh, hearing about the internet, and um, at the time, it was services like FTP and Gopher. But eventually, mm, yeah. this thing called the called the World Wide Web came about, and I heard about that very early, before most people did. So I thought, well, you know, it'd be nice if there was a way to get information about uh, electric airplanes because at the time, it, with the knowledge of electronics and everything, we were kind of making our own stuff, but there wasn't a lot of information out there that you could get. So um, that's kind of where I ended up getting into the RC business was making a, a web service. And it was 1995 that I made uh, started making the, the what became the E Zone, which then became RC Group. So that's kind of my history, how I got into the hobby. Ah, well, that's actually a good segue because we want to talk sure. to you about RC Groups. Um, yeah. Um, just so everybody know that uh, Jim and I kind of go back to the E Zone days, and that's when I first yeah. got it. Uh, got to know each other, and I got involved. And uh, in fact, you are the reason, for the most part, why I, I continue to to this day. Um, uh, writing articles for different magazines and, uh, mm-hmm. and reviews and that kind of stuff because you kind of browbeat me to help you out on the E-Zone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to write articles. And uh, I even was a forum, uh, uh, what do you call it, manager or whatever you want to call it, those things. Uh, moderator. Oh, yeah. Moderator, yeah. Uh, yeah. For the, the the first electric helicopter forum you had. They said, yep. hey, you don't have a moderator. You're like, well, how about you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. And That's great. Well, you know, the, the growth was just so big at the beginning. We had probably uh, maybe a year or two after I first made the software. We just kind of sat there, and, and it was the web just wasn't a thing yet. But if you had a, uh, you know, you had to go and buy a browser back then. Shoot, you had to go to um, Staples or whatever or uh, uh, Best Buy or whatever and buy a, a software product and install it to have a browser. That just didn't come on computers. It was controversial when Microsoft started including a browser on the computer. Yeah, they were sued the for it, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, the antitrust. So at that time, you had to be a lot more um, technical, 
just to get a browser going, and it was it was uh, hard to get visitors for a while there for a couple of years. But at some point in the mid '90s, the media started talking about the World Wide Web, and man, it just really hit. Yeah. And at that point, the growth was phenomenal. Uh, we were in the right place at the right time, both with uh, being on the internet and with uh, dealing with electric airplanes, which at the time were were just um, in its absolute infancy. It, it yeah. went from uh, being almost impractical to do it at all to uh, being very easy to do within about four or five years. So the growth in both of those was was really you know, huge. And that helped the site a lot. We got a good foothold. And I think from that point on, though there were, there were rivals, we just really didn't have any, um, any competitors in terms of, uh, the number of visits, you know, or the size of the site, you know, from that point on, it was, it, it, it pretty much reached escape velocity right away. Hmm. Yeah. I remember it being real popular. I, I, it's, it was a great, uh, I guess repository for information from, from the, I guess the user base and, uh, the articles that it would show up and, yeah, it was. It's hard for people who are who have come to the internet now in the last even uh, ten years, but let alone the last five years, to understand what it was like then. It was just wasn't as easy to find stuff. There wasn't a, no. a search engine you could use like there there is now. So you had to know about the the sites, and you had to go and maybe re, kind of reside there and and check it to get information. You do, didn't have it pushed to you the way you do now. And um, in some ways, there's some. I think there's some things a lot better about that. We were able to make a community that um, was very organic and involved a lot of uh, close connections. Whereas now we have a community that's, that's at least to a higher degree is driven by people who are visiting you know, transient traffic that comes in from a search engine to get a question answered. Uh, that, that's a lot of the traffic now. That's not bad or good, but it is a, a change, I guess. And uh, whereas you were there for the early years when we were making a lot of connections, I was traveling all over the place, talking about what I was doing and sharing information with people, and they were very excited about it. And there's just so much energy at that time uh, uh, that, that um, you really couldn't you couldn't duplicate that now because you'd be on the internet with a website that you know there's a million others like it out there. Um, so different different environment for sure. Yeah, it was a very close knit community in the, in the early days. It was really neat. You, really, yeah. you got to know a lot of the people pretty personally. You know. Yeah, and it taught me a really important business lesson, which I still think about today, which is that the you know if you can get into something that's that's uh, new and hot, then uh, if you could if you're able to have uh, you know enough um, information, enough experience with something to be able to predict a little bit ahead of time what's going to pop, that's the most important thing there is in business. You look like a genius if you do that. <laughs> yes. You know, it makes you look so smart, and everybody's like, "Wow, how'd you do that?" Well, I knew a lot about maybe it's Bitcoin now. You know, somebody knows a lot about Bitcoin three or four years ago. They look like a genius now. And uh, but out there are people who know something really important about something, and uh, and it doesn't matter what it is. But if it's something where there's going to be growth, that's where you need to be in business. That's the most important thing. <laughs> that's just the opposite of how I think. I I'm terrible at predicting anything. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you get then you get the whole thing of uh, was I good at predicting or was I in the right place at the right time? And you know that's that's part of business too. Is you just you you have opportunities you might not notice sometimes, but if you mm. notice them, then uh, you, you'll profit off yeah. of it. I think I joined RC groups or EZone at the time around 98 or 99. And I remember in those early days that I was on there, every now and then you would come on and ask for donations to buy new hardware upgrades to handle the new traffic. And then I guess at some point it went from that into an actual profitable business. So what was the the transition that made that happen? It was eight years. I remember looking back when we started, we actually made a profit for the first time. I remember, uh, noting to myself, oh, that was eight years. I hadn't thought about it. It was eight fun years. And um, it was even longer than that before I was able to to not work. You know, to, to, I mean, I still work, but I didn't work uh, a job. Um, and I was making good money doing consulting work, going all over the place. I was very busy. So it wasn't, um, 
you know, a problem. But those, the, all that travel, uh, let me use my, my time. I would have had otherwise, uh, I would have been able to, to know what to do. You know, I was in an airplane, so I would be working on the software. Or I was uh, in a hotel, so I would work on the articles. And uh, I basically got, you know, 80 hours a week of work in, in my business and in my, uh, my hobby. But it was eight years before the company broke even. And until then, I was feeding it money. Now, it wasn't a ton of money at first. It didn't cost that much. But as the site got really popular, there were a lot of periods where it was, it was really financially much smarter to shut it down. I had a lot of moments where I thought, well, it's just so expensive to run it. At that time, bandwidth was very expensive. It's not like it is now. So, you know, if, and, and, and I didn't have as much money then as you know, I do now. So it was a tough decision every month to spend you know, so much to feed all these people who are very interested in the service without having really any money coming in at all. I mean, had, we had you know, uh, maybe uh, a couple hundred dollars a month coming in for a long time. That's really all we had. Oh. And, um, and it was hard, too, because I'd go to the trade shows. I remember going to, uh, to the to show in Toledo and going booth to booth and trying to talk to vendors. There's no opportunity otherwise for me to do it. I'd try and call them. They didn't want to talk to me. And I, but, the, but if I'd go to the trade show, it's tough because now they're trying to deal with the public, and you try and wait for a lull, but they don't want to talk to somebody who's got this weird idea. You know? and, and to try and talk to them about the Internet at that time, was impossible because you have to explain the entire thing. They don't understand any of it, you know. So it took years and years before finally we got uh, some of the uh, the really forward-thinking vendors. With the time it was Hobby Lobby in particular, who said, "You know what? I think we could probably uh, uh, buy some ads, and maybe it'll work out for us." And once we got a customer or two like that, and they saw tremendous returns that were just so far beyond what they could get in print and other means, it you know it took a while. But once that happened. It was like the floodgates were opened, and the business was suddenly, uh, you know, more than viable. It was actually a profitable business, and maybe only after that first eight years, it was maybe only a year and a half or two years before it could have supported me. So it it, it seemed quick when it happened, but it was a lot of work, and it it, it was work. I was I was yeah. really working all the time on the thing, and that that's common. That's how businesses work, and of course it's tr- it's tricky because you don't know. It, it it's hard when you're doing it to know if it's just a waste of time. I've wasted a lot of time and money on different things over the years, a lot. But it's not a waste if you if they hit once in a while, and that's you know being able to see when they're going to hit is really important. In this case, what we had was growth, even though it wasn't um, making money. We had growth, and there was a sort of a feeling from the very beginning that oh, at some point we're going to start getting. I, I remember looking through magazines and counting up. Okay, that's a thousand dollar ad. That's a oh, there's, there's like there's like a uh, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a month of these ad, uh, these magazines. That's a lot of money being spent. You know, and I remember thinking, well, if I could get I could probably take 30% of that in maybe five or six years, you know, and that's basically how the, 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 uh, you know, business forecast, the business plan was developed was that we try this out for five more years. And then we try and get this, these, these advertisers to come over and if they don't, we just move on. And that's, that's how I, I did it. So yeah, that's pretty much the story. Yeah. Were the forums always a part of it? No, at the very beginning, well, they were almost always, but, um, we're talking, you know, always, no, because the very beginning, it really started with a mailing list called the E-Flight mailing list, which was for um, people to talk about via email, the electric flight. And, um, and then at, the, at some point, I realized I needed to have a website so people would know how to find the E-Flight mailing list. So that's really what made the website. And then the website became a source for the archives. And then it was, seemed logical to say, well, people want to post pictures. They can't really do the pictures by email. So we need to have software that would let them post pictures. And at that time... That, soft, that kind of software just did not exist. There weren't even digital cameras then, right? We had to, I had to scan photos in. So the, the idea became, I will tell everybody to, to mail me photos. I will scan them in and put them on the internet. 
And that's really where it all started. <laughs> yeah. I know it seems funny now, but that's how it went. You know, Things have changed. Back, the photos on a rock. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember uh, scanning hundreds of photos. And, uh, you know, then I, I would go and I would look at um, the stats and see what people liked. And I learned a lot from watching, you know, who was coming to the site and what did they like? What, did, what made them come to the site and what made them click? So very er- from a very early point, you know, it sort of um, had figured out the, the, the same process we use now with a website to figure out what kind of content to put up. You know, it's, it's not that, it's not like it's rocket science, I guess. But the point was that it was, um, it was very analytical from the very beginning, which helped make the site grow quickly because we just fed people what they, what they wanted. But I remember when digital cameras did come out, when they first came out, I was really annoyed because the resolution was so low. If people would send me an actual photo, I could scan it in at like, you know, 300 DPI. But if I got a photo from a digital camera, it was probably a 640 by 480 image. They were useless. It was really funny. It took years before they were actually good enough. Or, or what would happen is they had these cameras where people would, there were, there were no SD cards then. I have to explain all this stuff because people haven't lived through it. A lot of people that are listening maybe. But there weren't SD cards or USB thumb drives then. I'm not even sure we had USB. I can't remember. But but uh, they had like cameras that would take floppy disks, if you remember, the old three and a half inch oh, yeah. or whatever, three and a quarter. Yeah, I remember yeah. going to the deaf event and I had a, I borrowed a friend's camera and they used a floppy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I would get these floppy disks of images I'd load them up and it'd be like 100 images that you could hardly see what the heck was in there. It was just so grainy, you know. It's much better to have real photos. So I remember actually telling people, stop sending me digital images. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew that, I knew eventually they'd be okay. I remember uh, walking through the checkout line at a, uh, at a grocery store and sometimes I get the best thoughts in the shower at the checkout line at the grocery store when your brain just kind of, you know, goes into some kind of reserve mode or whatever. But I was thinking of um, how, you know, digital cameras, they've got these LCDs and that's what makes them expensive. But, you know, someday... Someday they're gonna make a lot of this kind of stuff, and I bet you go to a checkout line in the you know the the impulse purchase section of the checkout line or something like that. Next to candy, there will be some device with an LCD screen and you know and memory and all the things. That at that time, it would just force the device to be a thousand dollars, you know. And uh, and you know nowadays, as you can see, there's tons and tons of devices out there that have screens or touch screens, all that stuff. And it just shows you how you know you can predict sometimes what's going to happen. I, we did know that eventually digital cameras will be would be acceptable, but for a long time they just weren't. Wow, hey, well, that's the, that shows you that's the stages. The next stage, of course, was to make articles. After getting photos up there and all that stuff, then the thought was, well, let's make articles and publish a magazine. So we went to monthly publication of the magazine, and then it just kept growing from there. We added the the forums uh, after a lot of those other steps, and uh, and they just took off. Yeah, I remember going to read the magazine articles, and mm-hmm. we're, we're talking online magazine. Yeah, and and one day I just happened upon whatever button or click that gets me to the forums. Like, wow, yep. how did I miss all this before? It was a whole yeah. new side of the website. Really, we had a, a user named Andy Willits who's still out there, I think, and uh, was just really um, uh, very interested in the forums, and uh, and uh, and did an amazing job taking those and, and really running with them. And I was so busy at the time working on the article publication that um, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the forums for quite a while. They were, they were part of the site. They were an important part of the site. But it, you know, eventually, they became the, the most important part of the site by far, the thing that we thought about the most that we had to work on the most. And it eventually became consuming to work out moderation policies that would work for everybody and technology that would work for everybody. And you know, it, it became probably uh, 90% of the site effort. But um, in the early years, that was just, we put some software up and everybody used it and it just kind of ran on its own. And Andy took, a, took it and ran with it, did a great job. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Uh, yeah. And, uh, just uh, real kind of briefly, what was the impetus from transitioning from the E-Zone to the RC Group's name? Well, the E-Zone, on the internet, there, there's probably a, 
uh, even higher percentage than now of porn versus regular content. And it turned out that when I told people it was the E zone, they would do a search for it. These early search engines, they would get erogenous zone would be the, <laughs> the result. This is this is the truth. Oh, this man. is the answer. You asked it, I'm answering it. Mommy, what kind okay. of plane is that? It was a it was a it was supposed to be electric flight zone. But the idea of like safe search and all these technologies we have to, to segregate that kind of content for people who don't want to see it uh, didn't exist. So if you're at a church or school or something like that, you type in E zone, you would get results that that wouldn't be uh, acceptable. So. It was, uh, that was most of it. I also had, um, at the time, a vision that, well, when we started, the whole thing was to get electric flight, to make it more popular, to make it more accessible. And I've always saw myself in this uh, industry as being someone whose job uh, fundamentally is to, uh, is to help people who are new, whether it's real flight or whether it's RC groups. My job is to help people who are new at this. And, uh, and then we, by doing that, we also help people who've been doing it a long time. But that was how, you know, how I saw my job. So, um, you know, what I thought was that um, Electric Flight Zone was good because we were helping all these people who were new to Electric Flight, but eventually that wouldn't be good enough because there would be people who've, who are who want to stay doing glow models or gas, giant scale, or they're into cars, or even if we stay with Electric Flight for too long, it would become so mainstream that we wouldn't have relevance anymore because everybody would be covering the Electric Flight stuff. It wouldn't be enough of a hook. So we decided at that point that we would go. I say we all the time, but most of it was just me, by the way. I mean, I was by myself, but but I, I've learned to say we because eventually people joined. But at that time, I just realized, you know, we're going to have to change the name. And we had um, uh, 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 Sean Palmer work for me for a while. And I remember when we uh, first did this, made the switch to RC Groups, we went to, uh, I think it was again Toledo. And it was just a really hard sell again, telling everybody, look, we're we're not going to be easy on. We're going to be RC Groups. You know, we're, we're, we're making this change. And I remember Sean saying, you know, two years from now, they won't know what E-Zone is. They're just going to know RC Groups. I remember thinking, that's I don't know, that's awful quick. But he was right because a couple years later, that name RC Groups had worked out really well. Of course, we had a good logo that helped a lot. And um, and that's the, I, I don't remember exactly what year that change was made, but it was probably uh, around 2000, I, I'm thinking. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, something like that. Hmm. Well, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, it sure is. It's, it's history for me now because I don't even own it anymore. Yeah, which is kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a bit of a shock, but I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need to move on and, and do other things, and you're pretty busy with your other uh, ventures. So uh, that yeah. thanks so much for the history lesson on that. That, that is just sure. absolutely fantastic. And uh, you know, all your hard work and stick to paid off, you know? And, yeah, I guess so. You know, now we've got the, this wonderful RC groups that you know, I pretty much go yeah. to every day to look at articles and see what people are talking about what's what's hot what's new what's yeah i still use it too it's a great website so jim i have to say i think the last time i actually really saw you face to face is when you moved off to join knife edge software right and i know it was a big decision for you and uh, now you run a joint yeah um Tell us what has it been like for for your experience at Knife Edge Software. I know you just got you just released a new version of Real Flight, Real Flight Eight, I think. Is it called? Yeah, that's um, right. And so I'm really curious what it's like running a software company, and maybe some insight into the, the development process for your your products you guys do. Well, I started there. I think it was in 2003, and that's when um, I think I was president of the Def Club for like a month, <laughs> if I remember right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just it just the opportunity came about. Uh, the, the guy who who founded Knife Edge, his name is Scott, and uh, we had developed a relationship. I did some consulting work for for um, for G, Real Flight G two, and um, wow. at some point he called and said, um, "Would you like to come up and and interview and maybe take over Knife Edge software?" And 
uh, at that time, um, RC groups had just gotten to the point where it could kind of support me, but it didn't really feel like it was just quite enough stability. I just wasn't sure about it. And um, the opportunity to work at Knife Edge was something I'd always enjoyed that, that thought. It's great. You know, it combined all my loves of flight simulators when I was a kid, you know, with, uh, with RC, which I just adored. So it was really a no-brainer. And uh, took the position there as um, um, you know, president of the company and uh, immediately got to work on, on what became Real Flight G3 which was a lot of work. It was just uh, behind and had some features we didn't need and had uh, was missing a lot of features we did need. So it took a while to get that product ready uh, for the public, you know, and get it out. And then, um, you know, from there, I just eventually bought the company from him and, and uh, we've made a succession of products. Some some people might remember, some people might not. But they'll always remember, of course, we did G3, G4, G5. You know, we did all the, the major revisions of it, which basically we've done pretty close to uh, every two years, do a new major version, and then in the in the uh, in between years, we do a point five release. So uh, it's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy the work that we've done there. I had a lot of uh, uh, opportunity to learn about physics and how the flight model works, and to improve the flight model a lot from where it was before. Uh, it's a really large piece of software nowadays. It does stuff people don't even know about, maybe because it does things for people who are working on UAVs or drones, you know, um, uh, industrial drones or or whatever. People who are designing uh, flight controls for drones, and we have customers who use it for that purpose as well as the RCers. Uh, we also have a product that we're working on for full-scale flight sim, which would be which lets you fly my extra um, really? in VR, which is really neat. Yeah, I, I haven't haven't released anything yet, but at some point it'll be out. You'll see, a, you know, you'll hear wind of it. Uh, it's a great company. It's a lot of fun. It's up here in Oregon. I thought when I came up here, I thought, well, I'll do this for a couple of years. And now I've been here since two. How long? Oh God, we don't maybe want to think about it. But that's been <laughs> like fifteen years or something. Double digits, I've been up here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's been a really good run. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's, uh, it's just uh, uh, a real dream come true to work on the kind of stuff that I get to work on. So, in those earlier versions, you had proprietary transmitters that I guess had hard coded whatever in it to help combat piracy. Mm-hmm. What? How do you address that now? Well, I think what, uh, well, the way we address it now to answer your question, first of all, is through activation. You buy the software, you uh, install it on your computer, and then you activate the software by connecting to our, uh, our online server. And that's pretty much how software works now. RealFlight's a very unusual product in that it's been around for 20 years, just as RC Groups. The, both, the, both those companies really started in 95, 96. So they have the same you know, length, longevity. And because it's been around for so long, it's been through different, different um periods of like how software like the concept of how software is sold from being sold in a box in a store to now being sold online digitally and um, all software pretty much has moved to an activation kind of uh, strategy for copy protection so that's that's what we use as well or they have no protection Um, so you you briefly touched on uh, the VR thing and that seems to be uh, a lot of companies pushing that as the wave of the future Um, what has been development like for virtual reality and are you compatible with multiple platforms like the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift kind of stuff. We yeah, we have we support the the open standards for VR and uh and some of the closed standards as well. Uh, so we our goal is of course to you to work with all the VR headsets that uh that become popular. Right now that does include the Vive and the and the Rift, but it should include anything that works with the standard uh protocols that I think the Vive uses. So it should it should support most of the headsets that are coming out in the future. And by the way, there are a lot of uh, products coming out that are looking really good. So I think there's going to be, you know, it's going to get even better. 
uh, without any more work on our part, it's just going to get better and better because the uh, resolutions of the displays are getting a lot better. Mm. It's uh, to fly to fly real flight in VR is such a different experience than, the, than before. We've been wanting this for so long. We worked on it in different ways for a long time, trying to give people access to head tracking systems, and you know, and uh, and we even had um, support for an old VR system uh, 15 years ago. I think the Nintendo. Um, uh, no, it wasn't Nintendo. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't remember what it was, but it was a long time ago. Um, but, but the point is, we kept we kept trying to make it work, and it just didn't work. But now it's going to work. It's working well now, and it's great. If you haven't tried it, it's really worth trying. Lee, you still there? I'm I'm right here. <laughs> Any thoughts? <laughs> well, I mean, you guys were chatting. I was I was listening. I felt like I was just listening to the podcast and say, "Hey, well, let's learn more about Jim." Uh, <laughs> well, remember we were talking about RC groups. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I've I've been a customer of Real Flight since the classic version. I've still got yeah. my. Uh, I guess it's my G3 transmitter. It still works. And then I've I've currently have version seven on both my kids' computers. So. I guess I'll have to sneak in version eight soon. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You can play the combat games with the VR on, or you know, do your multiplayer, all that stuff, and just obviously flying at the flying field is great. And with the new software we're making for the uh, full scale experience, you get to hop my extra, uh, and you get to fly around in my extra at um, one of the airports I, I practice at. Uh, and it's you know the full VR experience takes a really high end machine for that one. Because it's used, it's using the same engine we use for RFX, which takes a very high-end machine to enjoy. But provided you have that, it's uh, visually stunning. So that'll be out. I don't know. Maybe this spring we'll see. So when we're, the we're user selects your extra, does it actually like open up a little box that says, "Are you worthy to fly Jim's extra?" Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? Nope. Are you really sure? No. Nope. There's a picture. Nope. Jim be- comes on the screen and says, "I don't know if you're ready." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, because you know what? People learn by doing. One of the things that's been so fun, uh, it's a great, funny question, but one of the things that's been so fun for me with Real Flight is um, making decisions that um, a lot of people wouldn't think about. But one of the decisions I've really enjoyed over the course of Real Flight um, is that with, with the older uh, Real Flight, I did this on purpose, you would uh, install it, launch it, you know, boot it up, whatever, have the control in your hand, and I would watch people do it for the first time. They'd install it for the first time. I'd sit there and watch. It was just so fun. And the throttle stick would be up, or the trims wouldn't be set, whatever, on the transmitter they plugged in, right? And the uh, the sim would start up, and the airplane just goes racing down the runway. It just didn't have anything to tell you what you're supposed to do. And uh, we did a bunch of different, we tried a bunch of different ideas, but I think that was the best. For a long time, I really just enjoyed that, because what I would see when I watch people is they would watch the plane fly off of the sunset and crash or whatever, and they'd look down the control, and then they'd start pushing buttons. They'd push that red button, and it would do it again. And they'd push it a couple more times, it would do it again and again. They'd, oh, okay. And they'd start playing with the sticks while it was doing it. And now they'd bring the throttle down. Okay, I guess I don't want the throttle up. Oh, that's the throttle. Okay, they'd, so they'd start taxiing up and down the runway, <laughs> you know, learning how to do that. And then over only maybe a half hour, an hour of, of uh, practice and goofing around and trial and error, they would learn how to fly an RC airplane. They wouldn't be good at it. Well, here's my— they would learn— here, here's my suggestion, yeah. though. If you want to make it like they're really in the hobby, when they crash and they push the red button, there's a little credit card swipe on the side that says, yeah. okay, now you've got to go visit your hobby shop. And then you put the VR helmet on, and it takes you to your hobby shop. And then you have to walk down the aisle and pick up new parts. Yeah, yeah there you go. There's, the, there's the real experience right there. Oh, well, yeah. we, we, Jim we've talked about the hobby business. <laughs> yeah. crashing airplanes anymore. <laughs> we've talked about some ideas. We do have a thing in there. If you bring up the console, you can push the tilde 
the key on the upper left corner of your keyboard on a US keyboard and you can type show me the money. I don't know if you've seen that. If you <laughs> no. do that it'll every time you crash it'll do a little ka-ching and show you how much money you, oh you my uh, spent. And it'll, I didn't, it'll keep a running tally, so you'll end up in the millions of dollars. I didn't know I did not know about that white rabbit. That's hilarious. But we yeah, we had talked about doing some things like if you crash a plane, you can't fly it again for a little bit. But yeah, people just they'll learn better if they just get to mess around. So Right. But yeah, no, it, we 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 thought through a lot of those kinds of things to play with different ideas. But it just turned out that was the most fun for people was just to go ahead and let them crash. So the 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 full scale sim, it's not going to tell you anything either. You just start out, you're in the airplane, go to town, have fun, uh, and you know, thankfully, if you crash, it doesn't. We're not going to like break your bones or anything like that. We're not going to take your money away. We're just going to let you start over again. So is it kind of a novelty to fly your full scale airplane simulated, or do you think somebody like you could actually get? beneficial practice out of it um it's a that's a great question of course the biggest thing from going to from rc to real aerobatics is the physiological aspects the forces on your body are just tremendous and they're unexpected there's nobody who's really ready for it they might think they are they have they might get in the plane like i did for the first time and think well i know where the sticks go you know all the time this is easy you know except your head goes that way yeah (laughs) where's the g-force helmet that's right that's right. It's very disorienting. So obviously, you don't get a lot of that. You don't get any of that, really, in the sim. But you are in the airplane. You can move your head all around. You can look all around. You can look at the panel. You can uh, uh, you know, play with the controls. And you take off, and it's, it's really immersive. So I do think I get some things out of it. Uh, one of the things that's really important for me to get out of it is at every contest I do, we have what are called unknowns. They're sequences that we don't get to practice. So we show up, we do, huh. we do a few flights, it's practice stuff, we know what we're going to do, we have it ready. And we've really polished off all the flying you know, uh, uh, decisions to make all the, the control movements. But the unknowns are tricky. You get in the plane, you have to fly something you've never flown before, you have to memorize it, and uh, they're complicated. They're, they're probably twice as hard as they were even 10 years ago because airplanes have gotten so much more powerful. They're just really difficult things to do. They're hard on your body, but they're also disorienting. And, um, and we have to stay in the box, which is hard. If the wind's coming out of the east, it might be completely different how we'd fly it versus if it's coming out of the West. Uh, so we have to, we have to present to the judges in, within this very small box. So there's a lot of challenges there. And one of the things that's nice about that simulator is I can fly through the unknowns until they make a rule against it, which they haven't yet. I'll be able to fly through the unknowns and uh, set the wind from this direction or that direction and make decisions on the fly and, and uh, work on my memorization. I'll be able to see what I'll, what I should be looking at when I'm flying. Okay. That's, I mean to have my head towards the, when I, when I do this down line, I'm going straight down, and I do this, you know, quarter roll, half roll opposite. My head will be facing towards the the mountain, you know. And I, I can start to memorize things that way. So, of the the maybe 20 people in the country who fly this kind of competition, there's no there's no sales be made for this because it's just not to make customers. But the, I think those of us who fly in this kind of competition will really enjoy it, and the rest of the public will think it's interesting. I hope because they'll get a chance to to do what we do. Not very many people get a chance. Oh, sure. Interesting. Now, yeah. now, you started aerobatics with, I think, was Satabria. Is that correct? I think we... Well, really, yeah, I started, I started. I mean, I guess the very first aerobatic ride I had was in a Satabria in the 80s with my dad. Then we flew some other airplanes, kind of interesting airplanes. Um, we flew a Casa jet, which is a Spanish um, jet made by Hispanola, mm-hmm. um, and um, twin-engine fighter jet that uh, he imported a bunch of those. We flew those wow. a little bit. and uh, But then as a... As an adult paying his own way, the first airplane I bought, uh, airbag airplane I bought, was a decathlon, which I, I flew for a couple of years in, in competition and air shows pretty heavily. And then, uh, but you know, I got to where I was breaking the airplane you know, like, too much. It, was, it, was, it wasn't smart. 
uh, it's not the airplane's fault. I was just flying flying too hard, you know. Mm. So because I was I was tumbling it and doing things that I've never seen anybody try and do with a decathlon. It, 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 things that things that are um, things that are within the limitations of the aircraft. I want to be clear that the the, the you know the state of uh, engineered limitations of the aircraft allow for. I believe allow, I hope they allow for the things I was doing, but which still are the kinds of things people just don't do in decathlons. And, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say it's the airplane's fault, but I don't want to say it's entirely my fault either because uh, I was doing what I knew to be okay. And, you know, probably wasn't the best thing to do. So I ended up breaking the airplane a couple of times in ways that I decided, you know, we need, we need to, uh, to, uh, uh, need to stop doing that. In fact, the, the tragedy of this, not not tragedy, but the near tragedy of this, is that I ended up selling that decathlon to somebody in Austria, and the the uh, ailerons uh, broke on it uh, after they flew it for a little bit. So I definitely stressed the airplane too hard, I guess, or the airplane uh, wasn't up to what I was doing in any case. So so learned the lesson from that. And uh, um, oh, actually, I'm sorry, I've got to go back. The first airplane I bought was a Yak 54. I forgot about this. I don't know how I did, but uh, Russian Thunder is the first airplane I bought. I'm talking about I'm talking about what my my competition career, but mm. you're talking about aerobatic airplanes. So the first airplane I bought was uh, the Yak 54 Russian Thunder, um, and then from that I moved on to the S Bach, uh, which unfortunately had a had a crash. So that that left me. Then I got the Decathlon, and then uh, the, I moved to the Extras after that. So you want to go back to the to Russian Thunder, probably? Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Russian Thunder, really cool airplane. That was um, on the cover of Real Flight. Because the Act Fifty Four was very popular in RC and nowhere else, it was a very uh, unusual airplane. It was um, they only made like I think twelve of them, and um, there just weren't a lot out there. It just it just never really was successful as a real airplane, even though it had a lot of really neat qualities. But it became very popular as an RC airplane because it had a mid wing and just kind of designed nicely for RC flight. So the uh, uh, when when before I joined Knife Edge, when they decided, hey, we need a Yak Fifty Four. The uh, artist at Knife Edge sought on, online to find a picture of a Yak-54, and they came up with one that was called Russian Thunder. It's the only one that was in the U.S. at the time, and uh, still is. So uh, it, it went on the cover of the magazine, and um, or of, the, of the box, and all the ads and everything. And the pilot, his name was Eric Beard, a really nice guy. He's uh, out of the Northwest as well, up in Washington. Um, and uh, he called me at some point, right after joining the company, and said, hey, Jim, uh, this is really cool. I'm a real flight customer, but my wife sees this magazine ad of real flight with my wing breaking off because we were we were touting the <laughs> break apart physics, right? <laughs> Could you guys do me a favor? Could you just change the color of that of that uh, F54 model so it doesn't look like mine because it's just scaring the death scaring her death every time she sees this thing <laughs> and she sees the box in my office, whatever, and she doesn't like it. Okay, sure. So we took it from blue, white, and red and made it yellow, white, and red or something like that, and and the the F54 model change colors well the the sad thing is that later eric did pass away in an airplane accident not in russian thunder but another airplane just one of those things and uh, i met his widow we talked about it and she was uh wanting to sell russian thunder to the right person and it just seemed like you know the the, the stars kind of aligned there and i bought it from her um so i, I, I never got a uh uh you know chance to talk about real flight any further with eric but i know that um you know i, I always thought about that about there was a connection there that was really uh special so i flew russian thunder for a few years i did do a competition or two but at that time it just wasn't for me i didn't want to do it i, I was just having fun flying the airplane and just kind of enjoying it i didn't want to do competition at all so i did a couple of them and then just kind of messed around with it, had fun um was there anything unique about maintaining a russian airplane or flying one with a reverse rotation engine yeah maintaining a russian airplane is a pain in the butt that's <laughs> that's the truth it just it's just uh they're they're really neat airplanes but they're not designed the way any Western airplane is designed. For one thing, um, they have an air start system, 
And uh, uh, I don't know exactly why they do that, except that it's just so cold. I think in, in Russia, I think is how this originated. I'm not sure. But the original design for these things, you know, in Russia at that time, the there was a lot of labor. It, it wasn't a problem to have labor. They needed to have, they needed to use up labor. They, everybody was working under a communist system and there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, production of stuff going outside of the country. So they just had to keep people busy a lot of times. So they'd have somebody manning a, an air tank to fill up the, or to start the airplane. It would run off compressed air to start it, you know. Uh, now, Russian Thunder did have a tank on board, so it didn't have to have a, a ground, you know, personnel helping it start. But that tank was really tiny and it would leak. So every once in a while, you'd go and, and start the airplane, it wouldn't start. You know, and it was very hard to get people to help me out with that. It also leaked oil, like any radial engine, but but more than that. And I wouldn't say it was a bad airplane by any means, but it was just a lot of effort. I'd probably put an hour of work into it for every hour I flew it. It was too much. And I, I got stranded a couple times with it, too. I figured every Russian plane ran on vodka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was it was uh, still, to this day, is still the neatest <laughs> airplane I've ever flown. It was like flying a warbird that was aerobatic. By comparing it to the extra it's very, very heavy. It's not as capable. It's just not the same kind of, you know, same quality of airplane, but it's special. It's really neat. It's owned by a guy named Rich Perkins down in uh, Livermore, California now. He's a great pilot, and uh, he was, I think, one of the original test pilots uh, in the U.S. anyway, display pilots of the Yak-54 when it came to the U.S., so he's a capable pilot. I, I haven't had a chance to see him in an air show yet, but we're friends. I'll, I'll try and watch him at some point here. No, I interviewed a guy a year or two ago who owns a Nanchang CJ6. Sure. Which my understanding is that's a Chinese derivative of a Yak 55. Sort it's of. 50, the 52. 52. 52. Yeah. Oh, right. Thank yeah. you. And yeah. yeah, he was telling me everything on that is pneumatic the, the yeah. brakes, the flaps, the starter, and it has an onboard compressor. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, Russian Thunder had that as well. It has the compressor. When it works, it works great. I eventually got it to work, but. <laughs> There was, you know, it took a, a couple years to get it to where it was really like a reliable airplane. Yeah, and that's yeah. not uncommon. Everybody I know who has a Russian airplane, they carry a lot of parts with them. You know, they carry, <laughs> they they fly everywhere. I, I fly everywhere. They and everyone I know flies everywhere with a scuba tank. You go get your scuba uh, tank filled up because you got you might have to have a, a you know, a, a tank of air if it can't get started. You know, like a my plane. If I if I can't get it started, I I can wait a little bit. The battery has plenty of power to try again and again. But with the air tank in that in that airplane, you might only have three or four tries. So if you don't get started for some reason, it's cold or the or it's got vapor lock or whatever it is, you know, then uh, it's hard to get vapor lock, but but whatever it is, then uh, you're gonna run out of air, and that's that's just it's annoying. Yeah, bet. Yeah, that's a, yeah, fascinating. Now, at uh, I saw at some point you were you went all the way down to South Africa to fly to competition. Yeah, that was the summer. What was that like flying in another country, uh, really uh, kind of ex- exotic country like that? Yeah. So I'm a member of the U.S. Unlimited team, which we had tryouts um, in 2016 for that. We'll have tryouts again this summer. It's every two years. Uh, when you're on the team, you, you serve for those two years, and you go to the Worlds to represent the U.S. in the um, in the odd number of years. So the next Worlds will be in France in 2019. Of course, I hope to make the team again to represent the U.S. there. But this year, in 2017, it was in South Africa. Uh, what was it like? Boy, it's really neat. It's just so different. Uh I don't know how to describe it. The first thing I'll say is that it wasn't really possible to get my airplane there, which was really difficult uh, for me. I really like to fly my airplane. It, I got my extra 330SC, which is a world caliber airplane by any standard. You know, uh, I think seven of the ten top top ten flew the extra 330SC in competition. That's how popular it is. Uh, but I got that in the spring, so I was really anxious to to fly it. But um, uh, but boy, I had a lot of trouble with that this summer. They had a 
airworthiness directive or a bulletin issued about the engine, so the whole engine had to come apart. I really Ouch. didn't get to practice in the airplane very much. It was very, very difficult for me. And, and finally, I uh, made the decision to rent an airplane, lease an airplane in, uh, in South Africa. But if I tried to ship my airplane there, by air, it would have been like 50000 bucks. It's crazy. By, by boat, it would have taken two months to get there and two months to get back. Mm. I mean, either way, it's just not going to happen. It's too much time and too much money away. So um, I leased an airplane there at pretty reasonable rates. And it was a good airplane. And uh, the only problem was I got there in South Africa. I got really sick. I was sick for at least a week and a half, maybe a couple weeks, uh, which ate up all my practice time. So I didn't really get very comfortable in the airplane I was flying while I was there. It was, it was a shame. But, uh, but the contest itself was great, and the area was really interesting. We were right at the edge of the Kruger National Park, which is a, a huge safari park. So our hotel overlooked a, a river. There were hippos and uh, water buffalo. There were elephants. There were giraffes. There were zebras. There were alligators, crocodiles, whatever it is they have there. I can't tell the difference, you know. <laughs> but uh, but all those kinds of things. Walking up right next to the um, to the uh, uh, hotel, we had monkeys all over the place. But the, the number of animals were just crazy. We had one guy um, went to the uh, shower and put his coffee on and and. Uh, put his milk out, went to the shower. When he got back, he had left the window open and a bunch of monkeys were in the room throwing everything <laughs> around. <laughs> and he said, he told me they, he chased him out and uh, they stole his milk and they sat in the tree and drank his milk. So, so was he slurring by any chance? I, I swear there are monkeys <laughs> in here. Oh no, it's really monkeys. No, because they would be out there, they'd be waiting by the door when I'd walk out the of the little cabin there. So they would they would definitely come in and ransack the place and probably throw poo all over. My it. son's going to hear this podcast. He's, he's going to use that excuse next time I tell him to clean his room. Yeah, I did. Yeah. The monkeys did it. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, South Africa is really interesting place. Um, it's uh, you know it's very poor. Uh, there's a lot of uh, shanty town kind of things. People living in cinder block cinder block huts. Um, uh, but there's. Uh, uh, you know, pretty good infrastructure. You can drive around and get your gas and all that stuff. But it's a little bit like being on another planet for me because I just haven't had the experience of being in Africa before. And it was amazing. It's so neat to walk around, uh, 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 you know, the, the little town that we were in and just feel like you were uh, this, you know, this weird person because you don't fit in. It's just really an interesting experience to do that, you know, and, mm. and to buy fruit from a stand and talk to locals. Uh, most people there talk, uh, speak English just fine, by the way. So there's no problem getting around and communicate with everybody. And uh, to be there to represent the U.S. and to fly at the world level, you know, and see how I stack up against the best people in the world is just is an amazing thrill. I can't wait to do it again. Man, that's, uh, that's fantastic. You, you've been living a pretty interesting life. Living the dream. Yeah, living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other any, any other aircraft that you're thinking of uh, obtaining, or just sticking uh, with the, the three thirty? Yeah, the, the uh, boy, that's a great question. I'm actually making some changes to my three thirty now in the off season. We're doing a lot to it to to try and uh, improve some of the aspects of it. The thing is, the three thirty is perfect for the kind of uh, flying we do in competition. It's just ideal. Uh, it has really great lines. It has a lot of maneuverability, has a lot of power. But the plane that's better for the freestyle stuff, which I like, is the MX. It's just It just can do things. If you ever watch Rob Holland, if you ever see the videos of him fly, his plane can just do things that we just can't do in the 330. And I'm, I'm trying. I mean, I'm, I can do them, but they're not really as good. You just can't do it as well. So I'm trying to make some changes to the 330 that would let it do some of that stuff, but still give it the best, you know, the, the world-class characteristics it has for competition flying, because I want to be able to do that too. And if that doesn't work, then I guess 
I would be in the market for an MX would be the only thing I could think of. But you know, by the time I'd make that decision, it's possible extra will have something new. And I, if I could stay with extra, I'd sure love to. They're, they've been really good to me. I bought a couple planes from now and uh, I trust their engineers. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great airplane. So, so we'll see. I, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I was, I was really excited about all these different airplanes and trying different stuff out, but then I hit the extra and it, it's kind of felt like this is the, this is where I should be. So I haven't, uh, been as keen on moving to something else. For one thing, it might, it might kill you. There's, there's, I've known people, I've been in this long enough now to, to have friends pass away. And, uh, you know, I, I it's just, you just gotta be careful when you start, uh, you know, you're doing 300 miles an hour and, and uh, pulling 10 G's over and over again every day, you got to make sure you have something that's going to be reliable and, and that uh, people can inspect and know what to look for. Well, besides the acrobatic aircraft, is there anything for like leisurely flying oh, that you're looking at too? Yeah. Do you, the, do you own a Cub? Do you own a Piper? I like don't. That? I don't. I had a share of a decathlon uh, until fairly recently. I, I gave it the share because I just wasn't flying it. I, I thought I would fly it more than I did. I might might get a share of that again. I've always thought the Cirrus, I don't know if you know the Cirrus, uh, that'd be a really fun yeah. airplane. I flew oh, yeah. a I flew at a friend's uh, Citation uh, CJ two uh, a couple weeks ago, um, which is a jet. You know that's an amazing. It was like five hundred miles an hour. Holy cow, that's really fun. Yeah. But the thing is, I have nowhere to be except unless I'm taking my extra. That's the only time I go to. You know, I, I really got to go anywhere is when I take my extra. I don't have. I mean, I could I could go places for fun with the family, but I don't need to be there fast. So there's no reason to spend a bunch of money. It's easier to fly you know, uh, on an airline, it's, it's way cheaper for one thing. It's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars an hour to run a jet. I mean, that's just, that's just, I'm not, I'm just not a jet setter. It's just not what I need to do. So I don't think I'll probably, I'm not in a hurry. I might buy a Cirrus. They're really neat. Yeah. Well, and they're pretty I'm, fast too. You, yeah. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned that, you know, you, you and your father did a lot of, you know, hopping with aircraft, you know, he'd sell aircraft. So for yeah. me, asking you this question is kind of like someone who used to, you know, whose dad used to work on vehicles or sure. cars, you know, is there a classic car that you'd want? So maybe of all the airplanes you've oh, ever flown in with your dad or, or just something you remember in the past, is there an old classic aircraft that you'd like to get your hands on? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's try this again. No, 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 one, no, you get no, one no. choice, Jim. <laughs> if I were to buy something right now which i've thought about would be a t6 i've flown wow. t6 texan yeah t6 is a wonderful airplane to fly it's just a great a stable fun airplane to fly it's got that greenhouse canopy you can slide it back and fly around with it open you can get your uh you know your uh, leather helmet on and a scarf and fly around and feel cool and everywhere you stop people are going to ask you questions i've flown <laughs> it i've really enjoyed it i've thought about buying one a bunch of times uh, that's probably the one they're kind of loud you know yeah, great. They're not fast either. The thing is, all the good airplanes are not good for going anywhere. They're just good for having fun, you know. And would you believe, I don't think I've ever been in a Cub. I'm trying to remember if I ever have. I'm sure I must have at some point, but I don't remember maybe ever flying a Cub. Oh, interesting. Flown a lot of other stuff. Hmm. You know, with my dad, it was mostly flying fast airplanes because he was selling a lot of business aircraft. And to me, to me, the best airplanes can go upside down. Maybe a Super Cub. I did fly a, a Clipwing Tailorcraft uh, last year, and it was great. Man, I really enjoyed that. It was probably you could probably buy one like that for twenty five thousand. They're not expensive. Wow, yeah, pretty cheap. You know, yeah. There's no there's no electrical on it. It's just start it up and go, and it does nice hey, Jim, aerobatics. Yeah. Every airplane that my son flies on real flight can go upside down. Just <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Do you yeah. fly RC at all anymore? I haven't flown RC. I don't think I flew in 2017. I think it's the first year that I haven't flown RC. Though I've, I, uh, I've, I think every year I've flown RC, it has tapered off over the last few years. And I've just been too busy. I was probably, I mean, I was on the road uh, almost 40 days in a row at one point, And I was in, in between that, I was 
only back for weekends. You know, I'm just very busy with the air show and competition schedule. So it hasn't really been possible for me to enjoy it. I might fly, uh, you know, a little quad in the house, but I don't count that. So I haven't been to the flying field probably in a year. Sad. It is. It is, yeah. But, you know, you only have so much time, and, and it takes uh, just to get all the stuff out and get it charged up and everything and kind of go through the pre-flight you know, for the season, I just didn't have time to do it last year. I never, I, I don't know. I, I probably flew something at some point, but it, I wasn't me, like, uh, like I used to be, I used to go every day. Do me a favor, Jim. Next time you go to the, the field and you're flying with your friends acrobatics, just whip out a transmitter. So while they're yeah. flying, you can just <laughs> yeah. get a picture of you, you yeah. know, <laughs> controlling the airplane. <laughs> can we mention, cause this is something Jim did on, 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 an, I guess, I don't know who caught it, but didn't you do that one wing landing? I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was, in a model, uh, um, in a model, on a model yeah, airplane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to segue. <laughs> I thought we were still talking RC, but yes, uh, there was this great video of Jim uh, losing his wing. Uh, give us, give us the story, Jim. Well, I was at the field here north of town. It's called a dare field, and um, uh, the guy. Let's see, it was a guy named Keith, and he just had a Yak fifty four, and I was sitting around. And at that time, I was flying, like I said, every day. So, um, and you know, I, I gotta tell you a little background, like, like I was flying so much that, um, I, I don't know, everything was just super duper easy. It wouldn't be like that today, but I was flying at the, at the office, the transfer set on my lap, you know? So I was just playing with RC all the time. Then I go out the field and fly and, until dark. So, um, uh, I had a bit of a reputation as a good pilot. We had one time I took off with an airplane with the servos reversed, the aileron servos reversed. And I had flown real flight so much with that condition because we were testing all the, you know, uh, what we call flight failures where the service could be reversed mm. that I flew around for like 30 seconds before I could figure out what that was wrong. I was like, wow, something's wrong with the ailerons. I don't know what it is. They're like something's weird. Like they don't handle, well, they were backwards, you know, <laughs> but I just gotten so used to flying in all these weird situations that it wasn't until I realized they were backwards. that I had trouble flying. It. It's kind of funny, you know, at that point, <laughs> holy cow, you know, end up landing. Okay. So, so this guy had his Yak 54 and it was pretty new and he asked me if I would fly it for him. And I said, sure, sure, sure. You know, so I, I took it up and then he wanted to see it do aerobatics, of course. So I was doing knife edge passes over the runway and all that stuff. And at some point I did a snap roll. And just at that moment, somebody had turned on a video camera to record the stuff I was doing. And at that exact moment, the wing flew off of the airplane. And it just, um, I was just flying it very aggressively. It was maybe not built well enough or maybe, I think I, think I finally figured out that he had um, cut through the wing skin when he put it on covering or something maybe. So... The wing flew off, and there's not much else to say except that I had flown all these flight failures, you know, and one of the flight failures was the wings coming off. And I had uh, been playing with it in real flight over and over again to where I would fly it around and do aerobatics with the plane in real flight with one wing and all this stuff. And, and in fact, I got to some discussion online somewhere, you probably go find it, with somebody about how that wasn't realistic. And I argued, well, we don't know, but I mean, I think it's probably realistic. I don't see any reason why it isn't. You know, I went through all the the, the forces involved, and yeah, it's that's you know, you fly around with one wing. Why can't you? It's, it doesn't, it has enough fuselage lift. It can do it. That's why I can fly a knife edge to begin with. One wing, two wings, doesn't matter. You know, seems unintuitive maybe, but I, I've, I argued it could. And then sure enough, when that wing came off, it was just like it was in real flight. So I flew around with the wing and then did a nice landing with it. And then later, um, there was a viral video made that was kind of a duplicate of that, um, that made it look like it happened with a real airplane. Of course, that was all fake. But after that, the Discovery Channel called and asked if I would reproduce this one wing landing thing to debunk this video and um, this, this viral video. And I said, sure. So they came out and we, we, uh, we put together an airplane that would, we could pop the wing off of. And the funny thing was when the, you know, the host and all the crew and all that stuff is out there and you're all mic'd up and everybody's ready to go. 
you never know if the wing's going to come off. And sure enough, I pushed the button while I was flying. You know, we closed out a whole airport for this. I pushed the button, and the wing didn't come all the way off. It, it slid out the wing tube about two inches. The servo pushed it out there, but didn't actually fall off. So once it hit the once the uh, the peg that kept it aligned left the fuselage, the wing was able to rotate about 30 degrees, <laughs> at which point it stopped. But there's no hope. You know, this it just spiraled all over the place and finally crashed. So uh, the crew all left. The host was kind of disappointed and everything. So I thought, well, I'll do it again. So I ended up, uh, you know, building it again. And then our own money, we, we got the camera out there and took video of it. And the second time, we were able to pop the wing off a couple times, and I was able to fly it around. And I could fly... Nice aerobatics. We did a bunch of rolls and loops and all that stuff. Knife edge loops. Couldn't do couldn't do regular loops because once you try and roll level, the you couldn't get enough force to to you know uh, you couldn't you couldn't no longer create force to pitch the airplane. It would roll the airplane right as soon as you hit the elevator. It would roll the airplane. But you could do knife edge loops. It was really cool and you could do rolls and point rolls and all that stuff. So I did that for a while and landed a couple times. And then finally I made an airplane with only one wing and uh, it had regular uh, uh, landing gear on the side of the fuselage. So you could take off with one wing, like sticking up in the air, like a dorsal fin for a shark. You know? <laughs> and I can tell you, I, that somebody should, somebody should go back and do this. Cause I know you can do it. Cause I, I'm absolutely positive, but I, I just kind of lost interest at some point, but uh, maybe I'll get it back out and try it again. But I just could not get that thing to take off. I figured if I hand launched, it, I could probably fly it, but I want to take off, fly around and have an airplane that was designed with just one wing. And it's, you know, I thought it'd be really fun. But maybe, maybe there's a product in there. You could sell a one wing airplane. That people can buy and, <laughs> and fly around. But yeah, that, that's kind of the story. That's, that's how it went. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Just, just something that happened. I got, I think the right place at the right time, very fortunate. And in a situation where I had enough energy that I could actually fly around and in some situations, you might be too low or not have enough airspeed that you wouldn't be able to recover. And in a real airplane, of course, you don't have a hope because you don't have enough uh, control surface throw or, or power. There's not enough air going over the, the fuselage to, to give you the lift you need to fly. You just got to bail out in that situation. Well, it sure was neat. I remember seeing it when it first came out. Uh, and I kind of wondered if that's why it was called Knife Edge Software. Yeah. No. <laughs> Good question. No, it was Knife Edge before I even came to the company. Oh, well, it's yeah. a better story, though, if you tell it that is. way. It is. <laughs> It was great. Congrats, though. I love. I loved your your stance at the end. You know, that was a good. That was a really good moment. So yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, uh, I would consider that to be the pinnacle. That's probably the best. Or at that moment, like there's like a six month window where that was the best RC I've ever been and probably ever will be. Just flying every day, and that's what it takes. Anything you do a lot, you'll get really good at. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I probably won't have that opportunity to do that again. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. I, I loved all the stories and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to what you get. I, I, I know I asked that question, but I'm going to check back with you and see what, what I'm going to, I'm sure I, I got you thinking, what kind of plane should I buy to commute around? This day? Yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah. Let's, let's, let's check back with us. Let us know what you, you, need, what you need is an auto gyro. Yeah, that's <laughs> auto gyro. <laughs> the least, the least useful air, aircraft there probably is. That'd be perfect for me. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this episode. Thanks, I really appreciate you stopping by, giving us a kind of the history of RC groups, uh, the machinations of uh, real flight, and uh, your adventures in flying the full scale aerobatics. That's just a fascinating topic and really informative. Uh, great to have you on. Really appreciate it, and. Uh, uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again sometime in the future sounds good if you want to give away a copy of uh, real flight eight to your listeners that's fine with me by the way oh yes holy smokes that's great just uh, let me know who, who to ship it to my, my son's gonna stuff the ballot box <laughs> 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 awesome thank you for your generosity we will most definitely do that yeah. we'll have some sort of uh, a raffle or something for our listeners to 
to have a win a chance to get the real flight eight hot off the press with a new uh, simulator smell. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Great guys. Thanks so much for having me. Right, really really nice to talk to you all. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll see you guys later. Right, thank you. I'll be back in one, two, three. As you heard during the show, Jim Burke has generously donated a copy of Real Flight 8 to be given to one of our listeners. If you would like to enter the drawing for this prize, simply visit the RC Roundtable page on Facebook and like the post for episode 46. Feel free to like all the posts you want, but only likes for the episode 46 announcement post will qualify for entering the drawing. Entry is open till midnight Eastern Standard Time on January 25th, 2018. We will use a random picker tool to select the winner, whom we will announce on episode 47. This offer is only good for those in the United States. Good luck. So guys, it's 2018. This is our first uh, episode of this year, and it's going to be an exciting year. uh, I'm looking forward to a lot of more events. In fact, I did post on my personal page. I don't know if you guys caught wind of it, but... um, on my Raviation page, just, you know, I really want to go visit some more events. So right off the bat, I'm going to head up to Georgetown, uh, Georgetown, Texas, where they have a huge swap meet, which is very famous down here in Texas. And uh, I think Fitz, you're going to join me on Saturday, right? Yes, I am. All right. So I'm going to drive up Friday because I think that's where all the, the best stuff <laughs> is shown. And I'm going to take some photos and maybe some video and have some, uh, maybe, maybe even do a live uh, Facebook post yeah. if... Uh, if that works out, uh, but to to get in and all the goodies, and I know some friends of, of mine from Northwest RC will be there, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. And then also, I think after talking with Tony, Fitz and I have pretty much uh, confirmed that we'll be attending Small in Arkansas come June, and we'll put most uh, excuse me, we'll add more information on that when it becomes available. There is a thread on RC groups. You know, speaking of RC groups, Jim. Uh, for small, so take a look at it, and we'll post a link on our Facebook page. Sounds like a plan. What's Terry going to do? Terry, what's your first event this year besides shoveling snow? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, there aren't many flying events around here until springtime, and I'm not aware of any swap meets. So I am toying with the idea of driving down to the AMA Expo East in New Jersey. It's about oh, that? We're going to Joyzy. End of February. In February? Oh, oh, coming pretty yeah. soon. They just had the yeah, one in so. California, didn't they? This past yes, week, I think. last weekend. Yeah. yeah. So the same thing, only 2,000 miles east. Yeah. I've never been to it, so uh, it'll be an interesting yeah, experience. Yeah, it sounds like a good, good thing to go to. I've been to the one in California so, some years ago, but uh, that was before they had the East Coast one, so it should be interesting to see what that's like. Yeah, so I'm not 100% on it yet, but uh, I'm trying to make the schedule work so i can get over there cool and there was talk last year on our podcast that uh fitz and i might go venture to neat do you think that's still uh gonna happen terry fitz <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready when you guys are i'm probably going with or without you so <laughs> well okay uh i'd like to go but it's too early to say yet uh we'll have to talk about that later uh just i don't know what my schedule's like or work 
vacation time. Yeah, that's September. Yeah, that's way, that's a year from now. Might as well predict the apocalypse. Yeah, really. Now, both of y'all have been, both of y'all have been to Seth, right? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. A couple times. And I've been there once. How about Joe Nall? Never. No, have you been to Joe Nall? Nope, never have. Yeah, see, I need to do a Seth and Joe Nall and a Neat. Those are on. Those are next on my bucket yeah. list, I guess. I got Oshkosh checked off. <laughs> They're all East yeah. Coast events. I'd like to do Joe Nall. I've where, heard so much about that. That should be interesting. Where's the Where's the Texas events? Come on, guys. Best. Oh, s- <laughs> well, uh, the little bit bigger ones. I'm not. I, I'm not dissing best at all. Don't get me wrong. I like the size. It's perfect. But uh, what? Hey, speaking of which, when's SAE? Is it going to be here this year? Um, that's a good question. I think they have this year off. Uh, I don't remember. Sometimes they have it off, so I don't. I, I haven't heard anything yet. Maybe check into yeah. that. I don't know if we're going to do that again, but that sure was fun. I'd love. To yeah, it was. It's a lot of fun. See those. Some <laughs> we got airplanes some... and some spectacular crashes. <laughs> crashes. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. Oh, I gotta go watch that video again. <laughs> <laughs> go for the action. <laughs> I, I think my favorite one is the one that went just piled right through the trees. <laughs> I can still I mean, hear the noise. I mean, there were some interesting ones that you know got didn't make it like five feet in front of the tosser, but uh, that one that went through the trees. Oh, that was like. <laughs> Because you just heard people going, oh. I like how it disappears and reappears again as it's straining through the trees. <laughs> yeah, there, that's kind of sad. I don't mean to say that that's the most enjoying part. Uh, I think it was also very impressive. There were some planes there that shouldn't have flown and did. So maybe we'll maybe we'll try that again if it's uh, if it's in use. We'll try <laughs> to check with Tom. I think that's understood. Nobody wants a model airplane to crash. But if it's going to crash, you want to see it. Yeah, I have it on video. Yeah. <laughs> which i did <laughs> all right guys well let's have a great 2018 uh i'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks and thanks for listening guys please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions or listen to our other great podcasts where you will also find links to our itunes and social media sites thanks for listening <laughs>